Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking about contracts for contractors with the help of special guest, Nizreen Hasib of Basil in New York, New York. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host, Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Hey, everyone. Tim Fowler here, and welcome to the Tim Fowler Show. Like I always do, I'm asking you to send me some ideas. It's one of the hardest things I have to do for this show is just come up with ideas to keep this train rolling. So give me some ideas, send them in, Tim at remodelersadvantage.com. So I travel quite a bit and in those travels, I meet lots of different people. And one of the places where I meet a lot of folks is at the International Builders Show every year. And this year I met an attorney that was sitting in on my change order class. And so we got to talking afterwards and got to talking about how incredible or how important um, paperwork is to a contractor and paperwork, of course, can be in quotes because a lot of it's, you know, virtual these days. But we got to talking about that. And I thought, you know what? It'd be really cool to have an attorney on the podcast and talk about this kind of stuff because we've talked about it in other contexts. And for a lot of us, paperwork is what I'm going to just call an afterthought. In other words, something bad happens and then we go, we should have had that in the contract or you know, or we lose a lot of money and we go like, oh, we should have written a change order for that and a little bit too late. And many of you, if you've been to any of my seminars, you've heard my example of the two contractors, particularly out West, uh, one of whom lost $90,000 because they did not document additional work on a job site. And then another one that when they went to arbitration, they only lost half of the 70,000 because the lead carpenter had actually done a job log, but didn't do any change orders, right? And so the job log saved them a little bit, but they still should have done the change orders. So we've had an arbitrator on, uh, I don't remember exactly what number uh, episode that is, but you can go back and find it, Dennis Dixon. And he was confirming, you know, in that, that, you know what, if it's not in writing, it's not going to be legal. And so I've got a strong hunch that our guest today is going to say exactly the same thing, except from a true legal side of this thing. And so I, I think, you know, our arbitrator guest was a contractor. In this case, our guest is an attorney. And I'm guessing that she's seen the client side as well as the contractor side. And so it'll be fun to kind of see uh, how that works. So Steve, for those of us that are reactionary and don't do this stuff till it's too late, <laughs> let's see if we can help people in need, help them get on the stick. And for everybody else that has perfect contracts, maybe this is a good reminder to stick with it so you don't run into trouble. Steve, let's get going. All right. So Nisreen Hazib is the founder and CEO of Basil, based in New York, New York. Basil makes it easy for builders, remodelers, and general contractors to generate the documents they need 
at the click of a button. Prior to starting Basil, Nisreen was a labor and employment attorney and an executive at different venture-backed companies in New York. She started Basil in 2022 after finishing the first remodeling project in the Catskills. <laughs> so a lot of contractors were using out-of-date contracts or contracts that had not been appropriately drafted, leaving them vulnerable in legal liability. Welcome to the show, Nisreen. Hey, you two. So excited to be part of this very important discussion. All right. So let's jump right in. So let's just kind of like we do with all of our guests, if you just tell us a little bit about the work you do now and how it engages with remodeling contractors. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, like was mentioned earlier, I founded a company called Basil, um, which helps folks in the remodeling and the builder industry generate the paperwork, you know, that they need. So the um, impetus for developing Basil really stemmed from my own experience with my initial remodeling project, but then also being brought in to consult on different remodels and new builds. And what was just astounding to me, you know, it didn't matter if we were looking at like a $20,000 like bathroom up to, you know, like even projects that went into the seven figures, there was like this tendency to really just trust in like the goodwill of people rather than to document, first of all, the initial contract for a project, right. but then to also, you know, have a process for documenting changes to the scope of work. I mean, you know, from the homeowner's perspective, um, and I know we're going to get to this in, in just a second, you know, like there's no kind of like paper trail to refer back to. But when we look at the people who are doing the actual work on these homes, you know, which include, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, that's a lot of money that's, you know, being put at risk um, as a result of not having signed contracts, signed change orders and other paperwork. Yeah. So just a question just occurred to me. So do you think the contracts get more complex as the jobs get bigger and bigger? In other words, what's going on in our industry right now, and I'm hearing from a lot of people, our job size is getting bigger and bigger. And I'm just sitting here wondering, and for the listeners, this wasn't something that we've talked about before, but does the contract for a $20,000 bathroom work for a $500,000 whole house remodel? So I'm going to caveat my answer with, you know, it's going to depend on everyone's situation. But what I've seen just from the contracts that have come across my desk, in all honesty, when we're talking about residential builds, residential remodels, yeah. uh, about 80% of your contract is actually going to be the same regardless as to whether you're working with, you know, that smaller scale bathroom remodel all the way to, you know, that entire like full gut uh, renovation of a new home. And I think that's something that's super important to yeah. highlight um, because, you know, like as you're growing your business, you know, which is like this big, wonderful and beautiful thing, you might, you know, find yourself thinking like, hey, you know, um, I'm more of a professional now, like um, I know how to handle this. I don't want to get caught up in all this complex paperwork when the reality is, it's you actually don't have to, you know, draw paperwork that is that much more complicated just because, you know, like the total value of your projects is like scaling doesn't necessarily mean the legal complexity is scaling as well. See, I can see it kind of going the other way, though, that that somebody's thinking, 
$20,000 is not as much of a liability. So I can, I can have a one page contract for that. And then a $500,000 job is a huge liability. So I better have that contract run through my lawyer and it might be 20 pages long. You know, I can see the mentality of contractors thinking like, Hey, no big deal at the low end, but really a big deal at the high end. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a little bit of like psychology here, right? Because first of all, if you can afford to sneeze at $20,000, like I want to (laughs) like, (laughs) all right, you know, good for you. But how many times are you dismissing the impact of that $20,000? Right. right? Um, How often are you getting that million dollar like project? Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that if your average project isn't that $20,000, $50,000, $70,000 range. You want to practice like good habits and have really good processes for collecting all of the money that is owed to you, regardless as to whether, again, it's $70,000 or a million. Because chances are, you know, like you're doing a lot more of those $70,000 projects than you are doing like those million-dollar contracts. Right, right. Oh, that's so cool. So just... From your experience, I guess maybe we can rank a little bit. And I know some at the risk of ranking documents, you know, if you get to document number five, somebody might say that's not very important, but it may still be really critical. But maybe what are some of the most critical documents that you've seen for the contractor that they really need to focus on? So the number one thing is your your contract that lays out, you know, the scope of work and the relationship that you have with your client. This is important for two big reasons. The first is is legal, but then the second is actually customer experience. So, and I actually want to highlight that first because, you know, like people usually think about like a contract merely as a legal document. And that causes a lot of people to like seize up. And like, I'm an attorney. I know how people look at attorneys. It's not usually like people are not usually like that excited to, to interact <laughs> with us. And yeah, I went to law school with a whole bunch of them. I get it. Like I wouldn't be excited to interact with like me or my classmates either. But I, the thing I would like to offer here is kind of this reframe of the contract, right? Because you're really setting up the rules of the road and the rules for how your customer is going to be interacting with you. And, you know, one of the things I want to pull out here is that, you know, as an experienced remodeler, you, you've been doing so many revolutions of this, you know, like chances are, this is not going to be like the first renovation you've you've done with someone. So there are going to be so many things that seem second nature to you. For a lot of folks who are renovating their houses, that's not the case. They haven't done this before. And what this means is not only, um, this might mean that they're not only like scared, but they actually don't know how to be a good customer. So you need to give them some guidelines for, for how, you know, like you want them to interact with you. So, you know, like I was looking at a couple of contracts, you know, before hopping on here, one of the ones that stood out as an excellent example to me, there was actually a clause in there that specified hours of communication, like when these people are going to be, you know, when you're, you and your team are going to be available via phone or email or text. And it also included a line that said, we're going to get back to you within X amount of like time, right? So, you know, not something you would really think about, you know, necessarily putting in a document, but it reduces so much headache, you know, for you in the future, because 
you've given the client a framework and an expectation of how you're going to communicate with them. Another, you know, like really big and important thing, and I know we're going to talk about this even more, changes to the scope of work. So, you know, like some of the contracts, you know, that I see that are not necessarily like up to snuff, you have the, here's the work we're going to do, and it's not detailed enough. Right. Here's how you're going to pay us. Okay. Right. That's not the entirety of a job. If only it were like that easy. Because we know that when we open walls, things are probably going to shift and change. Um, whether that's driven, you know, like by technical dif- difficulties or like the client decides they actually wanted to move the wall. They said they were okay with like leaving in place at the outset. So another super important clause that I've like seen, this is how you raise the fact that you want to change something in this project. This is how long it's going to take us to create a change order for you. And this is how you're going to receive that documented like change order. So we're outlining this like really clear process, you know, for the client, letting them know when we're going to like need their acknowledgement and response. And when we're giving them that opportunity to say yes, say no, or to say, tell me more. Yeah. So, so I'm just kind of flashing back to all my trainings on change orders and I know I, I really, really stress the production team in their first communications with the client, which is generally right before the job starts, that they cover all this. In other words, they talk about all these things that you're talking about. But I'm really liking this idea that all that detail goes into the contract itself, like the communication hours, as well as, you know, not only just how do we handle change orders, but how do you want them communicated from the client? I love that that view uh, of the contract. It's something I haven't ever, ever thought about before. Yeah. And again, I think it is, you know, unfortunately, because, um, you know, we're looking at like this contract is just like another, it's like a necessary evil, right? And I, I think that reframe is is so, so important. I almost think of it as like, you know, you as a remodeler, you're the captain of the ship. Right. And like, you've got your first mate who's like, you know, out there, like leading your team, you have your crew, like all the folks on your team, as well as like all the trades you're bringing in. I actually think it's really important to look at the client, not just like as a passenger, but as part of the team, but they're also the most junior members of the team. So they need to be like taught, you know, how that relationship's going to go. And the contract, rather than like being this document, that we like look to only if there's trouble, you can actually look at it as like this training handbook, you know, so that like this thing that your client can look to, like if they realize, oh, you know, I had a realization when I went to my friend's house, they have like this, you know, hardline outdoor grill. Maybe I like want to add one now to like my remodel instead of like just sending you like a barrage of text saying that they can remember, okay, Tim told me, Like, if I'm thinking about a change order, I should send him an email. He's going to respond to me. Yeah. If we need to, we'll walk, schedule some time to walk through things on site. And then if I still really want it, he's going to send me a change order with all the details captured there. And then I'm going to have the opportunity to ask my questions and sign off. Okay. So we're going to talk about two different aspects of all this uh, right now. Okay. So we're going to start with the bad news. And I, I guess I'd love to hear uh, if you have some some stories of just 
inadequate paperwork that have created severe losses. I shared my two, uh, you know, $90,000. I can't sneeze at $90,000 ever, right? Uh, and I, and the contractor couldn't either. They eventually went out of business. But um, but even the, the lesser one, it, it, you know, 35000 is nothing to sneeze at. But just like, what are some other examples that you have that of the inadequate paperwork that creates some severe losses for a contractor? Yeah. So, you know, like I said before this, I kind of drew up examples of really good contracts and, um, you know, contracts that are really lacking. So um, I actually have like the example of a bad contract drawn up like before me. So I think like the good thing is this person had a contract, so we're not starting from zero. But one of the signs that this was not a great contract was uh, this sentence, and I'm just going to read it. Some of the exact details are not known. However, these are real good ballpark numbers. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What happened? So, um, you know, this person didn't really like have a lot of detail into like the work that they were you know, going to be doing for this particular client. So, and in particular, you know, there were some lines in here that say that they would be doing some electrical work with some of the trades, but the thing that they did not do was specify what the um, fee was covering, right? So it wasn't clear whether the client was just paying for labor or labor and materials um, that was entirely absent from this contract. But there was another line in there which stated that the work the contractor would do would be up to code. And when asked to like clarify, you know, what that meant with the client, the contractor said, the client asked, so does this mean that if something is not up to code, you'll cover the cost when like the inspector like calls that out? Right. The contractor said, yes. So long story short, there was an electric inspection, the inspector called out that there needed to be a new electric panel. So contractor sends invoice for the new electric panel. And guess what? The client was just kind of like, oh, wait, this was something the inspector called out. I'm not paying for it. Wow. Then the like contractor tried to like say, hey, but this is like part of the work I'm doing. And then the client was like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. First of all, you didn't distinguish between like labor and materials. And like there was a verbal, you know, discussion. Right. So like, you know, what was what it meant to include like materials that would bring like the building up to code. And long story short, the contractor ended up having to cover the cost of that new electrical panel as well as some other work. Right. You know, right. I forget the exact amount, but it was not insignificant. So, you know, like you want to be careful. You don't want to just give real good ballpark numbers and you, (laughs) you want to be explicit as to, you know, what is, this sounds so obvious, but what is your client buying from you? Right. Are you clear on that? Like, are they clear on it? Um, If it's not clear, then like this, you have an opportunity to really like give people clarity because clear is kind. It's kind to you. It's kind to your client. It's kind to your like subs that you have to pay. So like, just really quickly, at what level does a verbal commitment constitute legal uh, uh, 
whatever you want to call it. I mean, when, when does the verbal, yes, that's what I intend become legal? Yeah. So, you know, like, I'm going to give you that like famous lawyer answer. It depends, but generally, you know, um, an agreement or like a verbal contract is determined to have like been met if there's some exchange, like there's what's called consideration. So I'm giving you like money in exchange for like the work that you're performing. Here's the kicker though, in order to prove that you have a verbal contract and generally when there's a conflict, everyone's going to be like, you know, oh, that money wasn't intended for that thing I like told you about. Right. Or like, you know, it's going to be a whole bunch of he said, she said. So the issue is not so much, you know, whether or not there was like a verbal contract. It's like, can you prove that there was a contract? And if you're getting to the point where, you know, like you're going to an arbitrator or to a courthouse, there's so much more cost that's like being piled on top of that in order to prove whether or not you were like owed payment or whether or not you were owed a contract. So, you know, kind of like setting like aside whether or not there there was like that contract. Can you, can you actually like prove it? Right. Uh, and that's why that paper trail is so important. Cause if you have like the receipts, then sure you could like go to, go to court, but then the person with like the evidence is going to win. Right? right. Right. Yeah. All right. So we, we get the bad news. All right. So um, what about the good news? What about like, woohoo, this clause, this contract, you know, worked well for the contractor that made it so that, you know, because I think sometimes in our world, it feels like the client always wins regardless. It's like, the, you know, as long if they complain and gripe enough, you know, either we give up or they, you know, or they win. So I, I want uh, I want some good news stories here about how a contract really helps somebody or or made it possible for somebody to collect when they when they really should have been able to. Yeah. So, you know, one of the clauses I love seeing in contracts that is like great, you know, just for your protection, it's a hidden defects clause, right? So, um, you know, with that clause, essentially like the most well-written ones I've seen stated, I, as a contractor, have inspected your premises. um, And like, you know, the scope of work reflects the work I believe needs to be done. Um, But if we open the walls and there are defects that we couldn't see without like, opening those walls, you're going to be responsible for like those changes. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a really good, really important. And one of those things that isn't always included in a contract, because it seems so obvious, like, yeah, I can't see everything. So, you know, like, of course you're going to pay for like, you know, fixing the defects. I can't, I can't see again, all well and good before like any money exchanges hands. Um, but you know, like, I have like seen, you know, like just countless times having that hidden defects clause, you know, like makes it really easy for folks to like go to the client and like say, hey, we have to do X, Y, Z thing. We're going to capture it in the change order. But like as a reminder, we explicitly like called this out. Um, And so in order to like proceed with the work we have to do, you know, we're going to have to do this work essentially. So that's an easy win for a lot of people. Yeah, so Nisreena, you know, I think there's a level of professionalism when a contractor can separate themselves and say, um, and maybe we should never do this as remodelers <laughs> and include the hidden defects clause. But, you know, I could say um, with most certainty that if I go to the basement and I look up and I see pipes going to a certain wall or, you know, even I don't want to say load bearing because it's a different story, but 
there's only so many things that you're going to find in the wall. And, and I can tell as an experienced person that knows about houses that I'm going to eliminate a lot of what I'm, I'll find unless there was something misbuilt that wasn't built correctly or built wrong previously. So, you know, there's one you want to protect yourself, but you also, you don't want to give a client the uh, confidence that, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we can't see behind the walls, but we have a good idea that you know, something won't be there. Right. So how do you kind of mix you know, being professional and knowing what should be back there versus you know, just kind of, it sounds open-ended in the sense that, Hey, if we you know kind of open it up and it's just a little wrong, then we'll check. Yeah. If we have to put in two extra two by fours, we're going to charge you. Let me let me just jump in. Maybe we shouldn't be concerned about that. Maybe we should just go with what is legally true. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that this is much more of like a customer, you know, like experience question. Right. And, you know, like the truth of the matter is, is like, you know, customers appreciate it when you're like straightforward with them, because like, you know, folks, folks sense when you, if you know everything, most folks are going to get suspicious. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. just like, I'm not an all knowing being like, that's just not true. And I, you know, I think it actually demonstrates a level of professionalism when someone is able to go to a client and say, like, based off of the information I have, you, this is the work that we believe like, you know, needs to be done in my past experience. And this is actually where you draw on that experience in my past experience, there are instances and you provide concrete examples. Like we've opened the wall. There's been knob and tube that like we had to like bring up to code, you know, like, and I tend to see that in houses that were built in like the 1930s, your house is built in the 1950s. So it's unlikely, you know, we're going to see that. So I think being like really straightforward, like cutting to the chase, you're like demonstrating that you're not misguiding them because you're not pretending to know everything, but you're also demonstrating your experience because you're just like, the reason why I don't know this is because like, I've seen these instances and all the other work I've done and I can, I have this hypothesis for what's going on with your house, but like, I want to like, you know, tell you that like, while we can't be hundred percent sure, we're going to have a process for dealing with this once we find out the information. So would you actually write that into the contract that we had this conversation about knob and tube and, or as an addendum or some kind of thing, would that actually be written down? Do you think? You know, that's like something that I would actually recommend um, folks discuss with their attorney on a case by case basis, because different cities, like, you know, the houses are so different. Right. So, you know, in some instances, like a simple two paragraph hidden defects clause will be like sufficient. But if you're someone who works on, you know, like historic buildings, you know, maybe like, you know, you're looking at something that's a little more intricate. So I would absolutely like say that's going to be more of a case by case basis. Is successfully estimating a job a struggle? Are you unable to win contracts? Are you getting work but not making a profit? If the answer is yes to any of these, then you must attend Remodelers Advantages, the Art of Estimating Masterclass. It's this Wednesday and Thursday, 
and Tim Fowler will lead this dynamic class to teach you the critical estimating skills you need for success. You will also participate in an interactive mastermind session where you will get and give practical advice from your peers. Don't miss out on this powerful and helpful course. There are only a few seats left. And again, it's this Wednesday and Thursday. Visit remad.co slash estimate to register. That's R-E-M-A-D dot co slash estimate and register today. All right. So splitting hairs here, hidden defects, unforeseen conditions. Is there a legal difference between those two? Yeah. So that's going to be something that's dependent state by state. Okay. Okay. So, you know, some in some states, they're interchangeable and other states, they aren't. So, you know, like if you're using, you know, kind of like a standard contract, make sure you get one from your local or state um, builders association. Um, if you're using a national one, please take that to an attorney to like, you know, make sure it's all consistent. Yeah. Cause I, I've never heard it said hidden defects. I've always heard unforeseen conditions. And so that's a, I just, my my antennas went up when you said that, and I said, "Are they different?" So, all right. So this has been amazing, and we we got a few more things we need to. I think we need to talk about. So, I mentioned that you came to my change order uh, presentation, and I just want to want to know, kind of like in that environment, what resonated with you that you feel like maybe not just what I said, but your experience as well that really needs to be emphasized about the change order process. Yeah. So, you know, like, I think the first thing that stood out to me was just how packed your session was. So like (laughs) clearly, no. And like, that's good because clearly like within the industry, you know, like we're acknowledging that like something has to change. The second thing that stood out to me was not so much like, you know, the discussion around like the paperwork and process itself, but really around like the psychology. There seemed to be like this fear, you know, that you're showing clients that you're nickeling and diming them by documenting like all these like changes. And I really think that's like a fear that like we need to address like head on, because again, if you're kind of like the kind of person that can lose 20 K, like I need to discuss my investments with you. Um, But then like, you know, number two, it's not just losing 20 K in an instance. It's like the 500, the thousand, like even like the $25, all those things that you let slide Tim, I think you use the um, term slippage versus like grippage. You know, I think those are like two great terms, you know, like the fear of like confrontation, the fear of, you know, like seeming like too much like of a taker. It was really clear that that was like something that a lot of people were dealing with. Yes. And, you know, that's why, again, I would encourage you when you're onboarding that client, when you're walking through the contract with them, really make clear like the rules of your relationship, right? Because if you just like say that at the outset and establish that all things like all changes are going to be documented, you know, it's something they're expecting. So you like that fear of nickeling and diming them goes away a little bit, but also as importantly, make sure you're like team in the field, like make sure folks know who's allowed to issue a change order and who has to say like, Hey, I have to like talk to like the folks back at the office about that. Make sure that people are all on the same page, because if you have like one or two people who are letting like things slide, that adds up too. So like, make sure everyone is like using the same language and process to move a project forward um, so that you can face those fears head on. Yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking about like a lot of the people that I talk to 
in most of my presentations, they're they're in the field. They're project managers, lead carpenters, and there is a natural fear of talking to clients about money, especially if they you know feel like, yeah, we should have seen those pipes in the wall, that that sort of thing. But I'm sitting here envisioning the owner of the company, salesperson presenting a contract to the client, and they said, so everything that uh, we didn't you know, see or whatever, it's going to become a change order. And you're not allowed to beat up my project manager about that. (laughs) That might help kind of set the stage where those of us who have this fear could actually do it a little more effectively. (laughs) 100%. I mean, like, you know, depending on your client, you could say that or you could say it differently. Or, you know, you give your like lead carpenters, your like project managers, the language that empowers them, which is like, hey, I hear you. I acknowledge you that's actually like something that is not my responsibility and I have to pass it to this specific person. And again, like even that process for like how changes get communicated to you, even if they're not directly communicated to you, it should be like outlined, you know, in your contract. But then also when you're onboarding like the client, you might like say, Oh, Steve's going to be like out, you know, like he's going to be the person you see like day to day you can let him know if there are changes that you would like to make. He's going to let me know, but I'm going to be the one who right. has that discussion with you. So. All right. So there's so much here. Uh, Steve, you got some more? Well, yeah, no, I just, you know, you mentioned the 20,000 and it that you know, that is a dollar amount, but it does not even speak to the emotional toll that it takes on somebody and the fear and the sleepless nights and the time spent leading up to that. It's just, you know, I've had one interaction in my time where legal had to be involved briefly. It didn't go very far, but, you know, it is way more than 20 grand. It's health. <laughs> you know, it's mental health. It's yeah. it's very deep. Um, the uh, so very similar to a, uh, you know, and I have nothing against this is I have nothing against prenuptial agreements. My the point is. It's not that romantic when you place it, right? So when you're dealing with a client and you say, hey, we're getting ready to go, but, and you know, you've got this contract, no contract's bulletproof. So it's really about, you know, this information is just great because it's guiding people to that. And I think people overcompensate because there there is such fear of litigation. It's the worst fear of contractors' safety with employees and then, you know, the, the litigation is close. So, um, you know, there is no bulletproof contract, but like, what's the best way for people to do? Because I think people keep adding as as they go through things. And so is it every year we say, hey, we got to take another look at our contract or like, should you be revisiting these things and how often? Yeah, so you absolutely should, you know, revisit your contracts Um, I think, you know, if you are using them without incident, reviewing them every year is great. Um, if you have a particularly like difficult client, that's also like a time to not just revisit the contract, but also revisit like the customer experience, like processes that you have in place. And, you know, like see if you're like just changing those processes with your like back office, with your like field team, but then also like, you know, making sure that that's covered, you know, with your contract as well. So you know, like every situation, every situation is different, but like every year is good to make sure you're good 
Um, also, things change, local rules change, state, state laws change, national rules change. You want to make sure you're like up to date. Um, and then it's also like an opportunity again, again, always look at like this as like an opportunity for you to like retrain your team in like the processes and procedures that you use to interact with your clients. Really, yeah. really cool. I got one more tip. Sorry. More Steve, uh, this stuff, it just having been in business, it was, <laughs> this is great. Um, and I don't know if you touched on this, but is there a way to um, put in your contract? Like, you know, there are arbitrators and I know through my uh, builder association, we had arbitration, but um, is there a way to put into your contract if we want to walk away? If it's, if things are not working and we just cannot move forward, you know, there's a dollar amount we need to meet, but there's an agreement to, you know, we've called it in the past on the podcast, firing the client. But if we're just not meshing, we need to walk away. What? How do we do that? Yeah. So you can, you know, like put in termination clauses. That's what they're called. Um, so generally what a termination clause includes is like a notice period. Um, and then it also, you know, like includes a list of like actions that like give either party the right to initiate like the termination. So, you know, like very much, you know, talk to your legal counsel about this, but to answer your question, Steve, yes, you can write that into your contract. It's going to, you know, like be, you know, for some other businesses that run like on a contract basis, it is a little more straightforward. Like for example, with software, like if someone were to like pirate my, you know, software, I'd be like, well, you can't use it anymore. That's like part of my termination clause. You know, since we're building buildings here, like that's going to be like a little bit trickier, you know, to deal with, but it is possible and it is going to be very variable um, on jurisdiction. Awesome. All right. So we're going to have to wrap this up, but I, but I want you to be, have a little bit of time. Just tell us about your app. And then that was uh, kind of how we got started talking, but just tell us about the app and what it might do for the contractors that are listening in. Yeah. So Basil, like I said, we make it super easy for you to send out your contracts as well to generate change orders. So, you know, like I know that a lot of like contractors have smaller operations where you're probably running your back office. Um, maybe a family member is, you know, like, so you don't have all the time in the world to like write all this stuff down. Um, what we make it, uh, what we do is like make it super easy for you. If you have a standard contract, we'll upload that. You type in like the work that you're going to be doing for the client. Um, it sends an email to them. It uploads the signed contract to the platform. But more importantly, if there's a change order that you want to generate, you like type the details into your phone um, that sends it, you know, to the client, or you can like hold on to it and add in more details. Um, and again, at the click of a button, you can send it out. So we make generating that paper trail super easy and it all lives on the cloud so that no one loses it. And every, everyone, you and the clients have your receipts. So, um, that's so how, do, how, do, how do people get in touch if they want to see what's going on with it? Yeah. So you can go to www.hellobasil.com. Um, and then you can also shoot an email over to hi at hellobasil.com. And we'd be happy to walk you through the tool and get you all set up. And basil is like the herb, right? 
It is like the herb. B-A-S-I-L. Okay, great. This has been so fantastic. Uh, we went a little longer today than we typically do, but I think it's fantastic information. I want to thank you, Nizreen, for being here and uh, sharing so much with us. It's, it's been fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is really wonderful. Um, and I'm like so excited and hope that this is helpful to folks. Thank you. Well, Tim, this is one of those episodes that makes my palms sweat, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it also is incredibly helpful and so beneficial because there's so many things that you encounter when you go into business. And if people come from the field or wherever they come in business, you know, it's taxes, it's payroll, it's all these things, but the legalities are really paramount in getting set up, but then also being aware, as you said, contracts and start working for people in their homes. Uh, this is incredible information. And, you know, I hope we kind of do another refresh with Nisreen on this. It's an incredible app. I invite everybody to go check that out at hellobasil.com. Tim, what did you take from today's episode? Well, you know, there's all the legal stuff, but I think I commented early on and I, I joke with people when I tell them about the podcast that when I get excited, it's real. I'm not faking anything on this thing, you know, and I, I think what I got excited about and you could hear it was just this reframing of what the contract is for. Instead of looking at it as this is just a legal document that makes you do what you have to do, you start reframing the conversation in that this guides the client experience. And of course, we've done podcasts on the client experience. And so, but this guides the client experience. And so you put stuff in there like, this is when we want to be communicated with. And, and I suggested during the conversation, you know, we talk about that sort of after the fact at the pre-construction yeah. meeting, but maybe getting it in the contract kind of brings it up and gets everybody thinking about it at the same time. And just the concept of the, the contract being a training handbook for the client. I mean, I wrote that down very specifically. What, how do we want them to behave in this experience that they're going to have, because I think it was said really well, they may have never done this before, and they may have never done it with you before. And so you want them to behave in a way that works for them, but also uh, works for you. And then, of course, I asked the question about unforeseen conditions, hidden defects. There's so many legal terms, and I, I appreciate the fact that Nizreen said, you know, check with your local counsel. And I guess I would also just throw in there that, you know, there are lawyers that do divorces and there are lawyers that handle, you know, housing stuff. Go with go with the one that does housing stuff, because the divorce lawyer may not know the difference between hidden conditions and unforeseen conditions, hidden defects and unforeseen conditions. Yeah, I th that was so interesting. Just the, bringing in the customer experience and that training handbook. That's it is. It doesn't need to be looked at as this gloomy, ominous thing that we're all, you know, hoping nothing bad happens. It can guide us through, similar to a budget or blueprints. You know, it's just a guideline that we can follow. It's awesome. Yeah, obviously, it has to protect the contractor. Sure, and that's part of what it does but also then the other side of it in terms of communication, communicating the rules of the road, so to speak. Yeah, well, this has been fantastic. So we want to thank Nisreen Hazib for joining us today. And we want to thank you for listening to another episode of The Tim Fowler Show.
And remember, at the Tim Fowler Show, we're working hard to eliminate it is what it is from your vocabulary. This has been another episode of the Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com slash consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.